0: What's up, Legends? On this episode of the podcast, I spoke with my friend and local author, Joshua Lawson. Josh is the recovery program coordinator at Shawnee State University Cricker Innovation Hub. He's new to the position there and filling it for the first time, as well as, like I said, a local author. Uh, His book, The Face of Addiction, is set to release in the near future. Josh is both an informative and encouraging person to talk to. Through his experience campaigning for Issue 1 in the state of Ohio, as well as writing his book, He's a refreshing reminder that the success of our city requires people on all sides of the opioid crisis to stop looking down their noses at each other, start looking towards a future together. And of course, every single episode of the Local Legends podcast has been made possible by Glockner Enterprises. They're a huge part of the good things that are happening here in Portsmouth, so when you or anyone you know is ready to make a vehicle purchase, make sure to visit Glockner.com to get started. Enjoy the episode. Bernard Glockner died in 1876. It is to recall that the funeral cortege was the largest ever seen in the city. This is the Local Legends Podcast. We're live on the Local Legends Podcast. This is episode number 30, and I'm sitting in the Glockner speakeasy with Josh Lawson. How are you?
1: I'm good, man. How are you?
0: Good, bro. We're living through uh, crazy times and no one's surprised. How, how are you holding up with everything?
1: Uh, I'm holding up pretty well. Um, me and my family have been lucky so far. Nobody immediately close to us has been touched by the, the mm. pandemic or the sickness or anything, but otherwise, yeah, it's been good. I,
0: we're, we're lucky to live where we live during this time, I think.
1: There are advantages to small rural towns, yes.
0: Which it's, it is interesting since all of this happened that like those advantages and just the highlights of areas like ours are, are uh, being recognized more.
1: Right, right, yeah, definitely. I know for myself, it's been, like, it's been a good year. Uh, I like to tell people it's, uh, it's been a good year to be an introvert. Mm, I like that. <laughs> it's been our time to shine. We're really coming to the mainstream this year. No doubt, no doubt. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, well... Um, again, I'm Josh Lawson. Um, grew up in the area, originally um, Kentucky, Kentucky native, South Shore across the river. but my wife and I have lived over here in the Portsmouth area since about 2010-11, I think, mm. a couple years after we were married. Um, I wear a couple different hats, and that changes you know over time. Uh, right now I just started as the recovery program coordinator at the Shawnee State University Cricker Innovation Hub. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with the fellows over there, David Kilroy, Derek Parker, uh, looking like we can do some some cool stuff uh, through that program basically what I'm tasked with doing over there now is making the services and offerings of the hub inclusive for people in recovery mm. and then building out some specific uh, programs and services designed specifically for people in recovery so uh, it's really forward thinking I think of the university to uh, create this this position that they have so I'm excited for you know the potential of what we're going to be able to do with it
0: you know Josh on the on the podcast and our our listeners know we interview local entrepreneurs about finding success in a small town. Um, As the stigma of drug addiction and recovery has lessened and changed over the last uh, couple years, we see more employers and community leaders like Shawnee State joining forces with Mm -hmm. and uh, uplifting people in recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think many have come to the realization that our, that our community can't really move on um, or, like, recognize its full potential without, like, redeeming mm-hmm. this part of the community, right? These people that have been mm-hmm. uh, heavily impacted by the opioid crisis. Right. So, uh, you know, they are a crucial part of mm-hmm. our success in a right. small town. Um, so I think, you know, that's why positions like the one you stepped mm-hmm. into uh, have come about. What's, what's been your, pers- like, perspective, um, mm-hmm as that kind of stigma's changed and these opportunities have opened? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I don't know if the stigma has necessarily changed, uh, but, but kind of the circle of, of people who, you know, are, are shedding that stigma has just, has just grown. So those, mm. those, I think it's still there. It's still there in our community. It comes out mostly in subtle ways mm. and mostly in indirect ways. There's not a whole lot of uh, direct stigma. I mean, you will find that with people. Uh, but really, there's just still a lot of indifference and ignorance. I think more than mm. anything else, and that's one of the big barriers uh, to it. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think we've got to find solutions to our problems within the problem itself. You know, and so to continue to marginalize people who have, um, you know, arrived where they've arrived, and they've, they've got the struggles they they are facing, particularly when it comes to drug use and substance use disorder and drug addiction. Um, many of them, it was because there wasn't a place for them in our community beforehand. So, mm. so, so to, to create that space, to, to be inclus- all-inclusive for people um, in recovery, things like what the what the Hub and other organizations is doing, um, is absolutely not just what's in their best interest, but what is in the community's best interest as a whole, for sure. Mm.
0: Mm. I like how you, you put that, that the circle of people that are, that are trying to change things has grown, and that's certainly the case that... Uh, mm being the recovery program coordinator, what necessarily uh, you, you touched on your goals a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. but where do you see the potential in positions like that here?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, for instance, the hub focuses on entrepreneurship. Mm. It focuses on, um, you know, providing resources and tools for small business owners and entrepreneurs in our rural Appalachian region to, you know, have the tools they need to succeed. Mm. And, um, Many of those people are in recovery in our area, and many people um, in recovery, at least that I've worked with. In um, full disclosure, I, I'm not I'm not one in recovery myself. I kind of count myself just as an ally to the community. Um, they have all kinds of incredible skills and resources um, that should be tapped, you know, yeah. for, for the good, you know, for their good, you know, their families, our community as a whole. And I think what the Hub is doing specifically is just trying to enlarge the, um, you know, the pipeline, the recovery to work pipeline. We have traditional workforce programs in our area um, that do focus on people in recovery and they do a fantastic job. But I think the Hub is uniquely positioned uh, to offer a service here specifically for people with that entrepreneurial drive and spirit mm. and creativity and to try to encourage them, to try to connect them with resources, connect them with you know, funding and investors and other people like them who they can share ideas with and collaborate with on a, on a scale that maybe right now is beyond a lot of their, their imagining or, or what they realize is even open to them or is out there. I think there's a, that's part of the stigma with, with many people in recovery, as I, as I see it and understand it, is they don't feel like there's always a place for them at the table, you know, mm. whatever table that is. Um, and in this instance, the Hub is trying to make it very clear here in the Portsmouth community that there's a place for you here in this conversation and all the resources that we can offer through the university uh, to people who want to start their own business, cultivate an idea, to see what they can make of
0: it. Mm. And uh, I like that, that there's a there's a place for them and you guys are making that a priority. Um, I was talking to my friend Max Lyles earlier this morning, actually, and he was like, I really liked the way he, he said this. He was talking about, uh, in context of people in recovery, that Portsmouth is a really easy place to restart. And, and I thought that was, you know, largely how we open the podcast and talking about the advantages of living in a place mm-hmm. like portsmouth now but just with the low cost of living that it has a unique kind of infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, that can really um be harnessed to reintroduce people as, as members of the community and members of the workforce
1: um, yeah i think i think when you when you step back and look at it there's a strong correlation there between like recovery in general and what's been happening in the Portsmouth community, mm. you know, because especially among the AA and NA tradition, there's this, this strong, strong emphasis on, on hitting rock bottom. Mm. And that's the point at which for many people who do, um, you know, find their way back, uh, yeah. that, that, that kind of darkness, their, their experience of addiction, that's where it starts is they hit rock bottom and they realize I got to go up or it's over for me. And our community has been like that in a lot of ways you know portsmouth sitrock rock bottom and now you know down there at that level is where people are now digging around finding tools and saying okay the calvary's not coming to help us mm-hmm. we got to help ourselves here And so you see all the collaboration that's happening all the sharing of ideas and resources and the creativity that's coming out of our own rock bottom here. So I think it's a really cool reflection, just of the community as a whole that we see there in the recovery world as well. Mm. And maybe, Josh. Uh,
0: obviously, it's influenced yourself as as a um, as a writer and creative. It's been like a large focus of your of the content you create. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just talking a little bit about uh, your book, The Face of Addiction. That's set to be released right near in the near future. Um, but maybe for, before we get into that, for someone listening that, um, maybe isn't, uh, quite open to the possibility, maybe it's a business owner, entrepreneur, somebody in working with or partnering with people that are in recovery. Mm -hmm. How, how would you like inform them or kind of open their mind to,
1: I always lean hard on storytelling. Mm. Right. Um, part of that is my background as a faith leader. Um the the you know faith community our, our poets and our prophets are, are traditionally the, the storytellers who um Tell the tales and the myths and the narratives that, that kind of govern how we relate to each other in society. Mm. You know, we, we live by popular narratives that are often so ingrained we're not even aware of them. But we're living by a certain kind of a narrative, right? Right. We've seen that in Portsmouth. You know, we, we've we've seen how hard it is to dig ourselves out of the old narrative that, that Portsmouth is a, a dead end community, that there's nothing here, that the only way uh, of overcoming is to get out is to escape this place, right. right? Because there's nothing good here. There's no opportunity here. That's a narrative that people have believed for so long. But now we're telling a different story, Mm. and people are beginning to buy into that, and it's beginning to replace the old story, right? So that's what I lean heavily on in all of my work, is storytelling. And the best way, I think, to overcome stigma with people who are still on the fence, like what you're saying, is to... Like, can
0: I hire a person that's mm -hmm. in recovery or freshly out of recovery? Yeah,
1: is to to be straight up with them, be honest with them. Yeah, there's a lot of risk involved in this kind of thing, sure. Uh, But put right in front of their faces the stories of real human beings, their friends, their family, their neighbors, people you know um, who have struggled, yes, but are human, mm. and who have all kinds of redeemable qualities and traits, who have uh, brought themselves out of dark places that I, you and I can't even imagine, we can't even relate to. Right. Um, you know, best we can do is, is try to understand and be an ally to them. So that's what I try to do in particular with the writing of the book, The Face of Addiction, which is mo- mainly a compilation of stories of people in Southern Ohio, most of them in the County. Um, who have been impacted in one way or another by substance use disorder and or the opioid crisis. And really just to humanize the people that we've for so long dehumanized. We call people junkies, addicts, Mm. users, and all of this is dehumanizing language. And what dehumanizing language does is it allows us to distance ourselves from our neighbor, Mm. to set ourselves apart, to think that we're superior, to think that they're other, they're outside somehow when they're not. You know, they're just like us. We are just like them. We're all in this together in various ways. And so I think the mechanism of storytelling is the best way to break through the walls that people have up in their hearts. And that's that's what I try to lean on um, heavily in all my work, whatever form it takes.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, definitely storytelling as a vehicle can really open people up to that, like open people past that bias that these aren't real people. Are. Sure. Um, Additionally, with like the work that Ed Hughes has done at the Council Center on his mm-hmm. episode of the podcast talking about, um, like the disease model of addiction, mm-hmm. that's just like the more and more I learn about the science of it, mm-hmm. uh, it sure. really is, uh, awakening, you know, it is, um. You know, him describing addiction as kind of like an allergy, like that there are pe- that like 90 percent of people are using alcohol or some kind of drug in their their life early, like mm-hmm. legally. And then uh, it, it really does kind of pick and choose people like allergies do. Mm-hmm. you know, sure. um, that kind of uh, language is in- encouraging to hear because it begins to break down some of the barriers Absolutely. that we've built up.
1: Yeah. It, it, on a number of levels, it does that. Mm. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the simplest is just, just enabling people to relate to others who have a, a struggle that's common to the human experience, but maybe it looks a little different from person to person. Like right now, I'm sipping on this coffee, right? this is my second or third one today. <laughs> Fortunately, this is a socially acceptable chemical dependency that I have. Of course. You know, but there are many of our, our, our friends and family in the, in the community who ha- whose, whose dependency that they formed at one point or another is not so socially acceptable. Mm. And we stigmatize that. And for so long we've treated it as a criminal justice issue when really it's a public health issue. You know, it's a biopsychosocial issue that has all of these complicated factors involved in it. And we've tried to punish it out of people and mm. we've only made the problem worse. So absolutely, the the disease model of addiction, um, all of the developing models right now are bringing us closer, I think, to a better understanding here of what we're dealing with, what our neighbors are dealing with, so that we can offer more compassionate care,
0: for sure. Mm. And you mentioned uh, the face of addiction and what you're trying to do with the book. Um, What can you share about your writing that you're excited about or you're excited for people uh, to hear?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm excited, one, because this will be my first published book. Mm. Uh, hopefully, have many more to come. Um, I consider you know writing a big part of who I am. It's a way I like to express myself and also uh, a form I like to give to my social advocacy. So the idea for the face of addiction, which, as I said before, is mainly a compilation of stories of people that I interviewed in the community just like this about how they've been impacted by the opioid crisis and substance use disorder. And I tried to tell the story. I tried to find certain people who kind of gave a good, nice holistic range. So, you know, mm. um, a, a wife whose husband died of an overdose. Um, the last guy that I interviewed for the story actually overdosed and died before um, I was able to send the, the first draft of his story to him to review. Mm. Two, ma- two months after he sat in my office, he overdosed and died. And one of the lines that, he, um, that I used from his, the interview to kind of title the chapter was, um, if I continue going down this path, it's just a matter of time. And this guy was the absolute um, sharpest guy that I would talked to in quite a while. He had so much value, so much potential, so much to give. And yet there were so many factors in his life that had led him down a course to where he was at there. And he just he recognized himself, you know, today I haven't used anything, but I can't guarantee that tomorrow I won't. Mm. He was still in active use at the time. He wasn't even in recovery himself. So I tried to pick people with different experiences along that spectrum to kind of give an overview of the whole experience of addiction, but also to highlight the people themselves above and beyond the struggle. So that's the idea of the face of addiction. We're humanizing these folks. Mm. You know, people who have struggled with drug addiction, drug use, people who are in recovery, that's not their whole identity. That's just Mm. one part of who they are. And so I think it's a good thing on the one hand that the recovery community has taken on kind of a life in a shape of its own, I think that gives a voice and a strength to people in recovery. But on the other hand, these people are far more than just folks in recovery. Right. And they have all kinds of wonderful things to offer. You know, the people in their life, their communities, and everything else. So that's the idea there. So I told their stories through 12 chapters in the book. I kind of sandwiched it in between two short chapters of my own Uh, journey and my my motivation for coming into this work, Mm. Um, a preface in which I kind of answered the question that people sometimes gave to me after I first got involved in this work, which was, you don't have an experience of addiction like this, so why do you care? Why are you involved in this? So I kind of explained that a little bit, and on the tail end, I added some final thoughts on how you can further educate yourself, because the book is very brief, it's not a long book, and it serves mainly as a primer, Mm. a storytelling mechanism and a primer for people to get involved further if they would like to do that for Mm. sure well the examples you
0: gave are really powerful josh and um i'm interested to see and read what the spectrum is of people I i think uh it's too easy sometimes to only focus on uh the redemptive stories themselves and not Mm -hmm. face those those really uh difficult moments Mm -hmm. right um when you're bringing up the question of like oh you you don't have recovery experience like what is what are what are you doing trying to be an ally or anything like that um Well, we've definitely certainly all been impacted at this point. If you're living in the Appalachian region, you know someone or uh, you know a friend of a friend that's uh, still struggling, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our economy, our social structure, everything's been affected by it. So we don't really get to uh, pick and choose whether or not we want to be a part of it. It's just kind of part of the ecosystem.
1: Yeah. I mean, studies uh, show now one out of every three people in America, some studies suggest maybe one out of every two, have been directly affected in some way, like what you're saying. Hmm. You know, I think when people ask me that question early on, it was just that the specific the specific aspect of I'm not in recovery myself. You know, I didn't suffer through this. I didn't go through treatment. I don't have that particular experience. So, so why are you so involved in this? Because that's something I've, I've found in my work since then too that I have noticed. Um, there are not a lot of allies mm. to people in recovery. Uh, there's most of the people who are really involved in the struggle are either the people with lived experience themselves mm former users people in recovery who are now in, in the treatment field or doing whatever they're doing to try to help other people who have this experience that they had or there's there's the professionals right there's our public health workers right you know there's there's those people in between you know just regular folks there's not a whole lot of allies there are some and they do fantastic work but we definitely need a whole lot more do you think it's just because they don't have That personal
0: experience with somebody?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's totally understandable, right? Mm. I mean, we only care about the things that touch us personally. Mm. And so that's why the story I always like to tell, my origin story, and what I tried to bring out in the preface to my book is, in answer to that question, at first I didn't know what to say. Because I got involved in this during 2018, the midterm elections. I worked on the issue one campaign in Ohio, which was dealing with issues of access to drug treatment, and criminal justice reform, and how those two worlds intersect. Mm. So it gave me time for the first time to devote uh, energy and resources to, to reading, to studying, to getting closer to the issues, to getting closer to people who had been directly affected by them in a way that I hadn't been able to do that prior, to hear their stories, to mm. see their joys, you know, feel their sorrow and all that. And it really moved me. And that's when people began to say, okay, well, why are you so invested here? Why are you moving in this direction? And so as I thought about it, two things came to my mind. Two men uh, who came into my life about four years prior to that, when I was going through something that uh, wasn't drug-related, but it was related to my own personal issues, Mm. which we all have. But it was a very trying time in my life. I was going through something with somebody close to me that was really just devastating for me. It was affecting my health uh, emotionally, uh, even physically at the end. It was was threatening the well-being of my family and I just couldn't pull myself out of this kind of destructive situation that I was in. Mm. And the people that I would talk to, they couldn't really give me much help on it either. I just couldn't find the tools that I needed to overcome what I was facing. Two guys came into my life at that point in time. One of them is a good friend of mine. Um, who we developed kind of this mutual mentoring relationship. Um, He would come down and visit me once a month from the Cincinnati area where he lives. Mm. Um, Still does. Um, We've maintained that relationship. And another man who I've never even met, but he's an artist, he makes music, and he has a long history of um, experience with various mental health challenges and, and drug use and addiction as well. And through his art and through the other man's friendship, these two guys spoke to me in a way that gave me the insight and the tools that I needed personally to overcome what I was facing Mm. in a way that nobody else could at the time. And both of those men were in recovery from drug addiction. Mm. They had hit rock bottom at multiple points in their life. They had reached points where many people in society would have written them off entirely and said things like, Narcan them once and and then let them die. Lock them up and throw away the key. But these men found their way back, and they came back from that darkness with, with this unique insight into just the general human struggle and experience that was able to help me at my point of need right. in a way that nobody else could. Brought this surprising value to my life that just blew me away and literally in many ways saved me with what I was going through at the time. So as I reflected on that after the fact, I was like, well, maybe this is some kind of returning of the favor. Some kind of of paying forward the help I received from those two men because it kind of formed this conviction in me that fuels everything I do to this day, which is that there's not a person out there right now on the street down in the East End with a needle in his or her arm who does not have the same potential and does not hold the same value. The potential to change the world—if not on a grand scale, at least for somebody like myself—and mm. so maybe, maybe that's what it is. It formed that conviction in me that kind of fuels everything I do now, and that's what drives my involvement in this in this work.
0: Mm. For local professionals, business owners, and entrepreneurs, like how can they play a part in uh, like this redemptive journey?
1: Well, you know, if if you're not directly involved, if you don't directly know somebody, I mean, put your ear to the ground. And, and mm. just suspend judgment and start listening to people who do know what's mm. going on, and do who, who do know what they're talking about, who are familiar with things like you're mentioning from Ed Hughes, the disease model of, of addiction, the, the developing understanding, modes of treatment, what works best, what doesn't. Especially above all, listen to people who are in recovery themselves. Mm. Let them tell you what what are the needs, you know, that I'm facing, that are facing the people in this in this community, um, and and just begin to listen. Listen to the stories. Suspend your judgment. Let some of those arrows get through the wall and you know and actually touch your heart and move you and then there's a there's a whole host of things you can do to get involved but it starts with that listening storytelling uh, letting the walls down and then from there there are all kind of opportunities that start springing up that's insightful josh let's talk a little
0: bit more about just the spotlight uh, on appalachia in general that i Think that's been coming through media and even uh recent media you know we had like when the book dreamland hit i think i don't know national attention wise if portsmouth ever had received anything like that uh, and there was all kinds of different reactions to it and then we have all these articles from new york times boston globe um, and even like most recently with the next netflix film hillbilly elegy um, the adaptation of uh, JD Vance's book. Yeah. What's your perspective on how our city and Appalachia as a whole is continually like being framed and portrayed to the to the world at large? And I guess how should like Appalachian people respond?
1: Um, you know, like anything else, I think it varies, right? Um, I think certain uh, news media sources have handled our area more faithfully than others. Mm. Um, I think there's definitely always that temptation to, um, you know, present kind of what they call poverty porn, you know, because it just makes for a fascinating news article and story and we can show the pictures of all the rundown buildings and all that and all those poor people down there in Portsmouth, Ohio. Mm. And sure, that's a part of the story, right? Right. But it's one very small part of the story. And so you have to be faithful to tell the whole story and you have to be faithful to listen to that story being told by the people themselves of Appalachia in general, in this sense. Um, So, and I think there are more and more people doing that, Mm. like Sam Canones, like Jack Shuler with his new book, This Is Ohio. And that's what's leading to more and more of that expanding circle or bubble of people who are breaking down the stigma, Mm. throwing off the old concerns, and opening themselves up to new ideas, new possibilities, and a new understanding. It's because there are so many people like that who are handling their stories. And, you know, if they're outsiders, looking in and handling our story more faithfully, you know, and more holistically, I think. So I'm always looking for people who are doing that and really to, willing to highlight their voices. And I think the, you know, if you want to get into it, the controversy surrounding Hillbilly Elegy, I think there's a mixture there. I think it's really well represented there. Sure. You know, because J.D. told uh, what it seems to me, J.D. told his, his particular story, the story of him and his family growing up, which is entirely valid, 100%. Right. Um, is it is it consistent with everybody's... Experience Everybody's story in Appalachia? No. Mm. So, so you always walk a fine line, I think, as a writer when you write a memoir. You know, so you have to write your own story in a way that appeals to universal experience, right? Uh, but you have to be careful as well, especially when you subtitle your book, A Culture in Crisis, that you're not trying to say that my story is the story of the entire region. Sure. It may be a part of it, for sure. It absolutely is. And that's why a lot of people resonate so much with the message that, you know, he put forth in that book. But there's also more to it as well. Mm. So I think, I think if anything, Hillbilly Elegy, um, you know, erred on the side of, you know, the emphasis on personal responsibility, which is absolutely valid. I'm a huge believer myself. Uh, but we also have to look, I think, that the social aspect as
0: well. I feel like the attention's always unexpected when it happens. Like, all of a sudden, Hillbilly Algae is, like, trending number one on Netflix. Right. Yes. And uh, if if you don't have the context of who J.D. Vance is or the book that he wrote, mm-hmm. um, then it just, it's, like, really provocative, yeah. you know, to what. Maybe you're from, uh, is it Middletown? Is Middletown, Ohio. Uh, Above yeah. Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so maybe, uh, like, obviously people in Middletown or places like Portsmouth have a lot, a lot more context Mm -hmm. of uh, like all the good things that are happening for their city and Mm -hmm. they're like really uh, busting it to change things. And Mm -hmm. uh, maybe just initially it's a little bit jarring to revisit uh, some, some of those really personal stories like JD Vance. Mm -hmm.
1: It is. If nothing else, it's a really good conversation starter. Yeah, so that's that's what um, you know. I've been trying to lean into a little bit with the book and the movie because I read it when it reg- originally came out. And I watched the movie last week, you know, to, to see how it kind of stacked up against. And um, I've been trying to kind of drive this conversation with people, whether you know online, you know, via Facebook. Last night we held a conversation at the Hub's uh, holiday happy hour event that was really fantastic, mm. and rep- it was a good cross current. Of, of, of differing views with the people who are at the table having that conversation seeing it from different angles on different sides but having a really good civil conversation about what's what is the overall impact here on Appalachia how does this relate to you know our experience and how people see us on the outside and mm. you know everything so I think it's a real opportune time to have this conversation you know even if it's a, a delicate one to have for sure
0: right right i think maybe the initial reaction is just feeling like we're going to get dragged back um but like you're saying uh the good that seems to come out of it and i i guess that the approach i agree with is not to uh try to silence bad media bad quote unquote media necessarily but um to like grow that sphere of influence in creators and that's why Mm -hmm. why we need these creative people in appalachia to tell like their narrative as Mm -hmm.
1: well Um, absolutely yeah yeah. And as long as that's represented there, I'm good with it. You know, we can talk about the problems. We, we can show the, 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 the pictures of the, the abandoned houses and the dirty streets. Absolutely. That's part of Portsmouth. Mm. It's not all of Portsmouth. Right. There's a lot more, more to it and there's a lot more to the people here. So let's tell the entire story.
0: And I think that really is the importance of uh, like what people like yourself are doing, Josh, mm-hmm. and creating and writing and making something uh, that you're presenting to other people in general. I think uh, too often, uh, people have formed opinions, but they're not uh, creating things to like bring that narrative to others. Oh, right?
1: it's so easy to do. Every time an election rolls around, anytime there's a big issue in the community, mm. anytime a, you know another kid dies, you know that was you know mishandled at social services, the agency. Everybody's got an opinion about it, right? Mm. But when the when 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 the when the dust settles, you know, and everything dies down, those people aren't really involved. Mm. They're, they're not coming up with solutions. They're not working to whatever extent they're able to. Everybody can't be directly involved in all this stuff, and we shouldn't expect them to or make them feel bad about that. We got lives to live. We got families to take care of, and all that. But if you're going to have a loud opinion, you better bring something a little more than that to the table. You know, mm. you got to be willing to be a part of the solution if you want to. If you want to opine about the problem as you see it. Mm. Absolutely. What are you seeing
0: about, and maybe just personally excited about? what's happening in our city or our region and Mm. what it implies for the future
1: Uh, the collaboration Mm. you know really Um, we've got so many people here so many organizations that all bring so much value to what's happening in our area and nobody can meet all the need themselves so we have to find and continue to drive this collaboration that's taking place between all different segments of our community (laughs) And, and, and even the ones where there's tension there between that. Um, you know, organizations uh, within the same field, just because they're made up of human beings, can tend to be territorial. And everybody wants to be seen as the, the ones who are leading the charge, right? Mm. The ones who, when they write the history books down the road, are going to point back to us, you know, and our names are going to get mentioned. We've all got that in us, right? Mm. But we've got to find a way to get past that, to come to the table together, to acknowledge one another. I mean, this is one of my core convictions as well. If people of goodwill and faith who want to make a difference in the world would just not care about who gets the credit for what gets done, there is no limit to what we could accomplish. Mm. I think that ego and that that drive for personal recognition stands in the way a lot. Sure. So I'm most excited about the collaboration happening in Portsmouth and Souta County, and I'm constantly looking for ways to connect people and to get beyond those petty differences that could get in the way of that. For
0: sure.
1: Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Josh
0: is a creative yourself, um, and I like this theme of collaboration that you're uh, taking notice of what What advice would you give to others trying to create um, something here locally like it it's just difficult sometimes uh I don't know you you have your book in and publishing um, you're always putting things out for other people to see. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people just have trouble starting
1: Yeah, well, you know don't try to reinvent the wheel right. So there are other people who, who um, have started this ahead of us, you know, and we need to fall in behind them and with them and learn everything we can from them and then add our contribution in, mm. you know, and work together with them. And, you know, it, that's how it works. The next generation is going to take it further than the one before. You know, that's uh, – who is that, Isaac Newton? If I see further than others, it's just because I'm standing on the shoulder of giants, right? Mm. So Ed Hughes and his generation, you know, they've done good work. I think Ed's retired now, right? I see him at the gym sometimes. Um, So another generation is taking up the mantle and running with it, right? Mm. We're not doing that in competition with each other. We're doing that in cooperation with each other. So, you know, those who, um, you know, have great ideas, want to start something, um, you know, it's likely that you're not the first one to have that idea or something like it. Mm. So, you know, search around, you know, get part of your local coalition, you know, get on the Chamber of Commerce, you know, do whatever it takes to just sit down at a table with other people who are doing creative things at the same time. And then you never know, you know, you might uh, find something that will further your idea. You might find a connection with someone who can help fund your idea, whatever it is, but just don't do it alone in the corner somewhere. You know, yeah. Find other people and work with them.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, and it's a, that's a powerful thing to overcome is like, I feel like in areas or small cities, small towns like ours, mm-hmm. um, because the. I guess the ecosystem's kind of small. It's easy to start saying like, or or get protective of what's yours. Right, you know what I mean? Right. Instead of a uh, instead of collaboration, so you maybe spend more time like trying to squelch other people's creative efforts uh-huh. instead of like seeing how you can help. You know, in fear that they would like start to overshadow you or their success. Wouldn't. But yeah. um, just like uh, our members of or our people that are in recovery, and then just. Uh, the people that aren't in that ecosystem or just the people in our city in general, like, um, in, in an area as small as this, like their success really is our success. Mm-hmm. We all kind of, uh, affect each other. Like Tara about told a story of, uh, when she was working out of the, um, it was out of the Marty's building at the, the, uh, makeup counter that was there at the time before she started her business. And, uh, how just like in her youth, she said it was, uh, like her initial inclination when their competitor went out of business was like, oh, that, that's uh, fantastic news. She told her right. boss this, like, you must be happy that she's like, he's like, man, it's it's never a good thing uh, when some like when your competition goes out of business here. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that was a, a powerful example. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the process of writing your book a little bit. Josh, how many chapters is the book?
1: Uh, Let's see. Uh, There were 12 stories, and each story Mm. is a single chapter. There were two in the beginning and one on the end. So I think maybe there were 15 chapters total, you know, along with the preface. Yeah. Sure. And then Lisa Roberts, who's one of our local public health workers, Mm. uh, she wrote an introduction for the book as well. Wow.
0: Wow. Awesome. Um, How how did you, like, what was your process in in creating, like, maybe uh, your experience you could lend to help? somebody else that's trying to publish something here.
1: yeah so, so the idea was conceived uh, close to the end of the 2018 campaign that I mentioned. Mm. Um, you know I was just kicking around ideas of what to do next, what to do out of this experience And so you know I had this growing interest in the opioid crisis, its intersection with uh, you know public health and criminal justice and, and also this this drive to write to create to mm. tell stories and so I thought, well, well let's try to put that together. And let's do it in a project, and, and I can turn it into a book, hopefully. And so I started a Facebook page for the face of addiction that I began to invite people to, and invited them to that as a platform if anybody would like to tell their stories. And that's nothing novel; lots of people do that, and lots right, of people right. do that better and on bigger scales than anything I've done.
0: Well, you, you can know. start to overthink it though, and that, I mean that's like a incredibly practical yeah. way to start, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So you know connections that i made through the work on the campaign you know i began just put word out to them hey if you know anybody that would like to share their story this is my idea i just want to create something here that tells the stories of some people and highlights them as human beings above and beyond their struggle with addiction and you know little by little people began to reach out and say that they were willing and interested in doing that so i would set up an interview with them we would sit down for an hour or so however long it took them to tell their story mm. you know and i would set my recorder on the table in, in front of us and tell them Look, you can share, start whenever you want, stop wherever you want, share whatever you're comfortable with sharing, leave out whatever you want to share. But just tell me about who you are. Tell me about what your story and your struggle was like. But also tell me about, you know, more than that. Tell me what 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 dreams you have right now. You know, tell me what's standing in your way right now. Tell me what we mm-hmm. can do as a community to better serve you. Here's what I'm hearing from the people that I work with, but you tell me, what's it look like to you in Portsmouth, Ohio? Is it getting better? Is it mm-hmm. getting worse? You know, what do we need? Where are the gaps? And so we just had that conversation and then I took and, you know, sat down and just transcribed it, you know, and kind of shaped it a little bit into more of a narrative story and then sent it back to them to look over. Hey, tell me if anything's wrong, if anything's inaccurate, tell me if there's anything that I included that now you want to, you know, you want to keep out and I'll change it however it's best. So it's your, it's your story. And they, I went through that process with all of them. And then I added my own content in as well. Uh, The preface that I told you about where I talked about my personal motivation, the two men who helped me, And then my own involvement in this uh, uh, coming into this work. Uh, You know, I talked about 10 years ago how, you know, um, I had a friend in school that I played basketball with. And he had a a very difficult situation of his own that ended him up with some addiction uh, and substance use issues. And how he lost everything through that. And how he came to me one day um, after we hadn't seen each other for a while. And uh, he was asking for money. And I, I felt he was lying to me. I, I didn't understand much at that point, you know, of the struggle, mm. but I could tell something was going on. You know, sure. he, was, he was shaking, he was nervous, the story didn't check out. And I'm sitting to myself there thinking, what's going on? Does our friendship mean nothing? You know, I'm giving him every opportunity I can to not lie to me, but he, he you know, he just he maintained his story and he went about his way. And it took me many years to begin to understand what was going on there. Was he a bad person? No. Was he trying to hurt me? No. But he was just caught up in that, in that experience, that addiction there that had control of him, Mm. you know, so then, and then all that experience and that time leading up to my involvement in the campaign and how that enabled me to begin to get close to people to read more of the research, you know, the latest developments and the understandings and all of that. Mm. And so I put that together in two chapters on the beginning. And then at the end, I included a chapter of final thoughts, just reflections on the stories what does this mean for people in Southern Ohio? What does this mean for people of faith? Because I have kind of had a faith aspect and emphasis in it, too, there, mm. uh, because that's been a lot of my background and sure. a lot of my work in this area has been faith-based, uh, though it's not confined to that. And uh, further reflections and suggestions on if you want to further educate yourself here, if you want to get involved, how can you do that? Because there's a lot of information out there. And it can overwhelm people who are not familiar with it. Right. Um, so it's 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 nice to be able to ease people into the process and not overwhelm them. So that's why I like to start with stories. You know, mm. Just let them see the people involved, and then we can start talking about the disease model of addiction. Then we can start talking about, you know, joining your local coalition and getting involved, and then we can start talking about medication-assisted treatment and stigma and Narcan mm. and naloxone and all this stuff and harm reduction. Um, but with some people, you know, still in our area. Um, you got to ease them into that. So, did
0: did it surprise you maybe how how vulnerable people were with you when you just asked, simply asked them questions?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and so I dedicated the book to them, you know, to the people who shared their stories with me here because when you share your story with someone, you're sharing something that is priceless. Mm. The most valuable thing you could share with them. And that that to make yourself vulnerable in that way, especially to put it into the public view like mm. in a book. You're putting your story in the view of the public, in the view of Amazon reviewers, you know, people, mm-hmm. who, people who don't know you or who don't know me. And they're going to get on there and say, man, this guy's a trash writer. This, this was horrible and blah, 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 you know. So you're, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable. And to do that, coming from such a, such a delicate place, the, these people that have had these struggles and have, have faced so much pain, so much loss, and yet they're still surviving and they're mm-hmm. still overcoming uh, so to be able to put that out there like that was in, very brave. Yeah, and blew me away time and time again. So I wanted to dedicate the work to them because they didn't have to do that. They you don't know, have to trust me with that, especially as an outsider in, mm-hmm. the, in the sense that I'm not, I'm not one of them. I'm not in recovery myself. Mm-hmm. That's a big mm-hmm. deal to a lot of people.
0: Definitely, and it, you know, for for so long, I think uh, just corporate America, b- businesses in general, like. Um, there's just this image that you're expected to maintain that you don't have any personal problems uh, Mm -hmm. that you always have your best foot forward. Never, never feeling down or struggling. It's, it's cool with like, uh, I, don't know, I think a lot of it has to do with like the open source platforms we have now for people to be able to share more mm-hmm. stories. You know what I mean? Like that uh, that a large network doesn't control all the narrative all the right. time. So it's cool to see even on uh, places like LinkedIn, like which is which is a very corporate platform. It's yes. business minded. Right. Um, like as that platform has grown in popularity, it seems like uh, the content that does really well or is starting to get more attention is the content is like hey i am a ceo but i don't uh i'm not like this wake up at 4 a.m and plant-based products like you're always being fed is the perfect way to be a ceo you know what i mean you're superman yeah yeah, exactly so just uh that is the power of storytelling just that element of vulnerability Mm -hmm. you know um and that i think what is really powerful about people that have uh, come out of recovery and are now in like even locally really notable positions, even Mm -hmm. people like Ed Ed Hughes that ran and now sits on the board at the counseling center, like him, Mm -hmm. him being open about his own, um, struggle. Uh, I mean, he's one of the most profound, like wiser people, Mm -hmm. uh, in the area, you know what I mean? And so it just lends to the strength of character. And I think you're uh, bringing, those uh elements to the table with your book
1: yeah you know it's true man we're, we're all human beings and we've all got our struggles and i i don't think it's right i don't think it's fair and i'll advocate until it's no longer an issue with people in recovery or people with substance use disorders um, I, i've lost all patience with people who look down their noses at folks with the drug addiction issues just because their own mm. poor coping mechanisms are more socially acceptable sure sure you know that's a powerful way to put it yeah we're none we're none different Mm. and sure yeah okay drinking three coffees a day is not going to harm me in the same way that you know a heroin addiction is going to I get that I'm not comparing apples to oranges but what I'm saying is we're all human beings Mm. and we all have that same struggle and nobody's going to threaten to put me in jail you know because I drink an extra cup so this is not a criminal justice issue, um, and the stigma that all surrounds it is in the way of people recovering, getting back on their feet, living meaningful, fulfilled, productive lives, contributing mm. to society, being entrepreneurs, developing their ideas, doing the things that are going to grow our community economically, health-wise, in all the ways. We're standing in the way of that when we give place to the stigma, to the old views about addiction and what it is and what it means, and we've just got to get rid of that. we got to let that go. Mm. That's powerful,
0: yeah, that it is standing in the way of the community development as whole, whether you're involved,
1: quote-unquote, with it or not, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very much a mutual thing, and you see this, and and this is part of what it means to be an entrepreneur, I think, is you see connections Mm -hmm. where other people just see gaps. You see possible solutions where other people just see problems and obstacles, right? Yeah. And you're able to find ways in collaboration with other people to extract the solution from from the problem you know unfortunately we've still got people who are looking back instead of looking forward but we've got to develop that 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 spirit that that mindset you know of the entrepreneur and that's not always just related to business it's you know, it manifests itself in many ways, but right. it's all about that creativity, connectivity, and seeing what's possible, whereas other people just see what's not possible.
0: Sure, and I know you entered. Obviously, you were doing a lot of uh, research and in the space already dealing uh, with issue one and those kind of things on the campaign um, before you wrote the book or began writing. But just even your yourself, you like things had to have uh, developed when you were hearing like your own personal views had to have developed as you're hearing people, um, just face to face, tell you Mm -hmm. these incredible stories. Like what do you think developed or changed in you in the process
1: of writing the book? Yeah. Um, yeah, just, just overall a more informed approach. Mm. Like I've always aired, I've always leaned more toward the side of compassion. Yeah. Mercy. And a lot of that's my faith background Mm. and what that's cultivated in me, gracefulness, you know, and all those things, fruits of the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But coming still from a place of ignorance, that can be very well intended, but misapplied. Sure. Right. So, so it helped me to gain a more well-informed approach. You know, also uh, that's one of my failures. You know, I'm I'm naturally more of a compassionate, gentle person, but I'm also, I have a tendency toward codependency. Mm. And so for years I would try to help people. By doing for them what only they could do for themselves, for instance, mm. you know. Mm. And so I had to grow beyond that as well. And that's a big thing you'll hear from people in recovery also, the concept of enabling. So you've got to know where the lines are drawn between how, are we actually serving people? Are we actually helping people? Or are we standing in their way in the name of helping them, right? Mm. So that, that's, that's something that's a little less talked about, but that's some of my, my own particular angle. So just getting close and getting better informed um, about the issues and how it relates and how it impacts people. That's, that's what that's what benefited me the most that time. Hmm. As far as the
0: writing process, because I want to dig a little bit more into like potential authors that are trying to, certainly already gotten uh things out of your story but like I, I think flexing the creative muscle like working out as a creative is something right. uh i'm not a writer myself but but i know your process isn't just staring at a piece of white paper until something comes to you you know yeah. <laughs> um so like how do you uh find yeah. the inspiration outside of your personal experience i'm sure yeah. you're an avid reader as well i know yeah. that much about you um,
1: yeah I, I draw a lot of i draw most of my inspiration from that from reading and from interacting with people Hmm real life situations usually when i get in my my moments of inspiration usually come after a conversation or Mm. after an interaction with people that's that that's enabled me to see something real on the ground right now here's a need here's how it connects with something else that i'm interested in Mm. and i make that connection and i'm able to articulate it and and so that that's those are the moments for me but you also got to be disciplined um, I think it was. Was it? But uh, I, don't I don't know. I don't want to misquote. Somebody said, "Inspiration exists, but it has to find you working." Mm. Right. So the muse is not just going to show up and say, "Hey, buddy, let's go write," or "Hey, buddy, let's go draw. Let's go create something." Sure. Right now, maybe. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it'll happen, but not often enough. You know. But you, you, you work. You get into the groove. You, you, do the. You do the work in in Pressfield's language, and the inspiration. Is apt to arrive a lot more often than if you just sit around and wait for it. Mm. So you gotta be disciplined as well. So, I mean, for me, what that looks like is I sit down, I look at the blank page. Yes, it's daunting. Yes, it's intimidating because I'm a perfectionist. And so I want everything that comes on the screen or or comes off my pen to be crisp and and perfect right from the start, right? I have a really hard time with the first draft. Mm. You know, I want it to be good, I wanna edit it as I'm writing it. Right. What I, then what I end up doing is just discarding the whole thing or not continuing with it because I feel it's not good enough or I get discouraged or I think, oh, the finish line is so far down the way. Mm. So, so embracing the messiness of the first draft, you know, which I think is applicable as an analogy, just get it out there. Mm. Just start. Just do the work. It's going to look like crap the first time. You know? That's why they call it the vomit draft. You just <laughs> vomit it onto the page. You just get your thoughts out. You just write the story. Yeah, it's going to need a lot of revisions. It's going to need other sets of eyes to look at it and say, this works, this doesn't. Rearrange this. Take this out. Kill your darlings, in the words of Stephen King. Some mm. of the parts that you think are the best, you just got to, they don't fit with the story. You've got to take them out. So it's going to go through a long process of revision and perfecting, but you've just got to start. You've just got to get it out there. And that's one of my, my points of, uh, of where I face a wall and a barrier, that I've just got to be okay with less than perfect mm. and just get it out there.
0: Yeah, I think it's embracing like the perfectionism is just so often uh, procrastination or mm-hmm. just avoiding the subject entirely.
1: And as I think it was Julia Cameron who wrote the uh, who wrote a lot on the art of writing and creativity, she said, "Let's call procrastination what it is: it's fear." Mm. Yeah, it's fear, and a lot of that comes down to you're afraid that you're not good enough. You're afraid that your work's not good enough. You're afraid you're going to be made fun of, or it's going to be made light of, or it's not going to be well received. You're afraid. I'm afraid. We're all afraid, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's moving beyond that and seeing that, you know, we're all in the same boat here, but we've all got something to contribute, something to give. And if we just keep it to ourselves, man, what a tragedy that would be.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And it is, yeah, that temptation that. I, I think a lot of creatives have because I find myself in the in the same box all the time. Like you're you're trying to compare um, your journey or where you are on year five and being mm. a creative to where someone is in their year twenty or thirty. Right. Like yes. you're uh, probably not going to write like Stephen King. Yeah. You know what I mean? You gotta like you gotta. St- the, the, I think the key is just starting. Like that's the secret.
1: And yeah. comparison is a killer. Mm. When you compare yourself to to, to other people. You're either going to like get all puffed up, feeling great about yourself, mm. you know, like you're better than them, or or you're going to feel like crap, you know, because oh my work doesn't compare at all to them. Mm. So it's not it's not helpful and it's not healthy either way, you know. The only the only best comparison to make is you know me yesterday. Am I getting better? Mm. Am I am I doing better work today than I did yesterday? And that's that's the only comparison I need to be making.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Josh, where can people find you online or connect with you?
1: Yeah, well, I'm on all the social media platforms—not all of them, but most of them. I use Facebook probably the most. I'm, I'm new now to TikTok, thanks to my, uh, <laughs> my my daughter and son who have pushed me to get on there and try to make some comment some content. Um, but I, I can also be found on Patreon. Uh, people that want to support my my creative work can do so on Patreon. Um, I also have a blog, uh, LawsonWrites.com, where I feature some of my stuff, um, and that'll be some of the connection with the face of addiction as I, you know, I enter into the publishing world here. Um, and then I do other various freelance things here and there. But those are the, the main places where people can find me. Mm.
0: Josh, we appreciate you being so open about your process and the projects you have going on, man. Looking forward to the face of addiction and reading it myself.
1: So. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for, for you coming. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>